Well, good morning, everyone. First of all, I want to bring the warm greetings and love from your brothers and sisters in the Denver Ecclesia. Some of them are here with me. So we are excited to be here, thrilled to be back. It has been a little bit of time, maybe four or five years. Brother Zach Vest gave us a great introduction to our topic this week, which is going to be very much prophetic. And we want to look at a sequence of critical events and really kind of go to the crux or the heart of the matter where some of our views have differed within our community. And I want to attack this with, with much detail, um, humble spirit, but I, I think it's critical that we have a correct framework because there's a purpose in prophecy. Brother Zach addressed some of those critical principles last night. I've got a couple of verses that I would like to introduce Verses that I refer to often when we're looking at the purpose of prophecy. The first one is in John 14:29. These are the words of Christ here, and it says, Now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, you might believe. So that's the point. I'm going to prophetically tell you what's going to happen, so that when you see these things come about, it will increase your faith. You might believe. These are events that are miraculous, such as the regathering of Israel, such as all of these prophetic events that were told in the past. It's the test of a, of, of a true prophet, that when you would see these things, you would go, I have to admit that something much larger than the kingdoms of men is at work here. And whether you're far away from Yahweh in terms of your faith, or very close, it's either a confirmation or it is some sort of motivation that says, how else do you explain this? The other verse that I like is the purpose of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. Brothers and sisters, the prophetic aspect or future aspect of resurrection is of tremendous comfort. The prophecies, which is uh, throughout the Bible, of the coming kingdom are our entire hope. So uh, I thought the exercise was very interesting from last night when Brother Zach said, let's take all of the prophetic chapters or sections out of the Bible and see what you have left. Uh, It would be very disconcerting and I would say hopeless to really categorize what this is. We'd have an excellent book for moral walk and moral exercise, but nothing else. There's no context. There's no purpose. Why am I trying to be a good person? Why am I trying to follow Yahweh's commandments, Christ's commandments? For what? Just to be good? It's kind of an, uh, it's a hopeless prospect. So prophecy, which has been described by a brother to me, it's the engine that drives walk. It gives you that context. It gives you, it gives you that purpose. In terms of the prophetic timeline, which we are earnestly watching, there is nothing left in the prophetic timeline to be fulfilled which precludes the return of Christ. There's no other major event that we are waiting to see happen. Call of judgment can happen at any moment. And we have uh, events that are moving quickly and rapidly even this summer. So the topics that I would like to address, and they're in a set order for a reason, today we'd like to look at Ezekiel 37 and understand and look at it in the original understanding and see if it holds up. Meaning, is Ezekiel 37 something that has been gradually happening since 1897 and through 1948, or is it post-Gogian invasion? Then I'd like to look at uh, tomorrow, hopefully, Lord willing, the peace and safety. Who secures it? So we have divergence of view here. Christ secures the peace and safety, which entices Gog to come down, or Is it the strength of Israel's own hand and the pride of dwelling confidently and securely that is that peace and safety, which is attributed to their shame and considered a trespass against Yahweh? We have to reconcile those because the two cannot stand together. Also, does Israel have to be scattered again? We'll look at that on Wednesday. Many would say that the Holocaust and the scattering in the wilderness of the people since 70 A.D., that has been accomplished. But there are many verses and a bulk of verses that say uh, Israel must go back into Egypt, a second exodus out of Egypt. 
but she must be scattered into Moab and those south area lands. What are we to do with those verses? Does Jerusalem have to be taken or sacked again? Then also I'd like to look at specifically, which I think is uh, we have more clarity on this issue, is where does Christ return? Does he first return through Jerusalem with literal angels in dramatic appearance to the world? Or does he appear in secret for the judgment in Sinai and the march of the rainbowed angel with immortalized saints, those that have been resurrected and found worthy? And is that march of the rainbowed angel from the south, how is that compatible if, he, if in fact he returns directly to Jerusalem with literal angels, not including the saints, to redeem Israel's from, uh, which is also thought from Arabic roundabout, not Gogian invasion. So I want to go right to the heart of those issues this week, and it's in that sequence for a reason. So I ask that you just consider my evidence, consider the scripture, because it is heavily weighted in that regard, and we will um, try to define the framework, because prophecy only has one true interpretation. It can't have multiple interpretations. And herein has been the uh, danger many times in approaching the, the uh, prophetic word. That is, we have this interpretation, we have this interpretation, we have this understanding. It's too confusing. I'm going to bypass the study of prophecy and just focus on another aspect of the gospel. The purpose, the motivation, the strength, the encouragement of prophecy never takes root. And it's left on the shelf as something that's either academic, too difficult to comprehend. There's multiple confusing interpretations anyways. Why study it? So I will limit my focus to a very limited aspect of the gospel. The apocalypse is the last written testimony given to us by Jesus Christ himself. We are compelled to study prophecy. Daniel and all of these books in fact, I would submit to you that 70% of the Bible is prophetic. So with that as an introduction, let's get right into our topic with Ezekiel 37. Now this chapter has served as an anchor to our faith for latter-day believers. And it is, and it rightly should. The regathering of Israel into Palestine, the parable of the fig tree, Theodore Herzl in 1897. We have the first Zionist Congress, the Balfour Declaration, the British Mandate. We have the right of return. We have the Aliyahs returning um, up into 1933. We have Israel as a state established in 1948. Now, Ezekiel 37 in the vision of the dry bones has fit hand in glove with these significant developments. Or is this the correct place in terms of time frame and sequence of Ezekiel 37? And the dry bones... Is this accurate for the pre-colonization of Jews to the land in unbelief? And that's something we want to look at as well. Is this a contingency of Jews in the land currently that has returned in belief or in unbelief in pursuit of their own economic development? I was prompted to dig further into this study after, frankly, hearing a, a talk by Brother T at a gathering we had a few years back. And his presentation on Ezekiel 37 was quite a bit different than what I had, I had understood Ezekiel 37 to be. He indicated that, in fact, our pioneer brethren agreed with the position he was presenting, so I decided to verify his sources and do the research myself. And after completing the study, I must say that I share his conclusion. And I'm going to bring to you that same evidence out of Eureka, out of a variety of uh, sources, that we understand how did the Jews and what was the catalyst that brought them back out of Europe? Did they come back believing in Yahweh, or were they embittered? And in fact, many that came out of the Holocaust said, how can we have a God that allows this to happen to us? They came back in unbelief. They rely upon the strength of their own hand, and we'll show some of the very words of their leaders, which says, we must secure our own nation. We must secure our own safety. There is no mention of Yahweh. In fact, if you remember in detail the inaugural address, it took a rabbi out of the outer upper balcony to inject the words of Isaiah and any mention of Yahweh at all. And we'll look at those words by Ben-Gurion. So first, the correct interpretation of Ezekiel 37 in no way alters the timeline of where we're at. It in no way diminishes the significance of Israel's return to the land as witnessed in its various stages 
almost a, of almost a 2,000 year dispersal. Rather, it gives even more clarity to the end time prophecies as we understand them and solidifies their relevance in terms of sequence, scriptural principle, and the restoration, restitution, and regeneration of the nation of Israel. So my primary sources are Ezekiel by John Alfrey, Alpus Israel, Eureka, Milestones 1988 by Graham Pierce, Herald of the Kingdom and the Age to Come, the 1852 edition, and other publications and sources, including the exposition of Daniel and the uh, Daniel Expositor. Now the simple premise and conclusion that I wish to present to you is that the vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones takes place after the Gogian invasion. So lest you think that this study is entrenched in minutia or minor details or the splitting of hairs in terms of its arguments and conclusions, I assure you it's not the case. This is yet another little piece of the puzzle that has found its correct spot that helps us to illuminate the overall picture of Christ's return and the establishment of God's kingdom and purpose with Israel. It is immensely edifying and reinforces what we already understand, but more importantly substantiates what we expect to happen at any time, and that is the call to judgment. This is the urgency of understanding where we are in the prophetic timeline. We don't have any more time. There is no other event that needs to happen which precludes Christ's return in the call to judgment. So in this malaise of this world we live in, of materialism and humanism and self-serving and uh, all of these other aspects, which is truly fleshly driven, and this peace and safety which we really have enjoyed, this Laodicean time period, that is when Christ returns as a thief, Revelation 16:15, Not in dramatic appearance, but catching many of us, or hopefully just a few of us in the household, asleep in a truly Laodicean apathetic state. So there are no surprises. I always like to make sure you know where I'm you know where I sit before I tell you where I stand and you know my conclusion. So I uh, ask you to listen to what we're going to present this morning and to see if it adds up. It's nothing new and that's not the way I approach things. It's, uh, it's very original, it's traditional and I believe that this is uh, completely in line and squares with scripture. So let's get into Ezekiel 37 and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. In the vision, the prophet Ezekiel is transported to a valley, which is full of dry bones. And that comes from verse 1, as you'll read. He is told, or these bones, he is told, represent the whole house of Israel, which you can look down in verse 11. It's an important point, not just Judah, but also Ephraim, or the whole house of Israel, the ten northern tribes. He is commanded to prophesy over the bones and to cause them to, quote, hear the word of the Lord, in verse 4. In response to this, there is a noise and a shaking in verse 7. And Ezekiel looks on in wonder as the bones come together. Sinews and flesh are laid upon them. They're clothed with skin, and breath is put into them. They then stand upon their feet, an exceeding great army, in verse 10. This chapter is frequently expounded as referring to the regathering of the Jews and the establishment of the modern state of Israel. In this view, most of the prophecy has been fulfilled. The noise and the shaking mentioned in verse 7 are considered to be the various important events in the progress of Zionism, from the work of Herzl to the establishment of the state of Israel. Israel, it is alleged, has been caused to stand upon its feet an exceeding great army with their military, their nuclear, their air force. The victories of the Israeli armies over the Arabs since 1948, and Psalm 83 is used, is a witness to this. But there is something wrong with this approach. Subsequent prophecies, if we continue further in Ezekiel 38 and 39, will show that Israel is to suffer greatly at the hands of a northern aggressor, Gog. If Ezekiel 37 takes place before the Gogian invasion, and Israel, who is to be possessed of God's spirit, standing on its feet an exceeding great army, placed in the land by Yahweh, where place denotes given rest, which specifically is the rest, then why would they suffer such defeat and humiliation still future at the hand of Gog and his confederacy? Add on top of that, Christ and the saints are the cause of that peace and safety. Do they withdraw? Do they allow Israel to be conquered yet again? That doesn't seem to square. 
The prophecy of chapter 37 presents an unbroken chain of events. The Son of Man prophesies over the bones, which is verse 7, Ezekiel, representative of Christ. There follows a noise and a shaking in verse 7. The bones then come together. Flesh then comes upon the bones in verse 8. Skin then covers them. Breath, or God's Spirit, next enters into them, verse 10 and 14. And in consequence of this, they are said to live, verse 10. They then stand upon their feet an exceeding great army, verse 10. And they are placed, which means caused to rest in the land, in verse 14. And visually, we have this graphic. So where then, in this sequence of events, can the Gogian invasion be located? It is difficult to see how it could be anywhere other than prior to the events described in Ezekiel 37. Now it's important to understand how this modern interpretation came about, and such an exercise will help us understand the basis and the ramifications of misunderstanding Ezekiel 37 in terms of where it is placed along the timeline. For example, W.H. Bolton, writing of events leading up to the creation of the State of Israel in 1948, comments this, quote, Israel was a nation. It had its own government. It had its own parliament. It had its own institutions. The dry bones became alive. It was not all that might have been hoped for, but Israel was once more a nation in its own right. It was no longer a collection of dry bones nor a lifeless body. The book of the prophet Ezekiel, pages 163 through 164. But compare Graham Pierce and his comment. Quote, the substance of the prophecy that brings bone to bone, flesh on bones to make a body, and the spirit that makes it a living body is all in the future. Milestones, 1998. And also H.P. Mansfield from Ezekiel's Prophecies on the Restoration, page 57. Now it's important to note that a right view of Ezekiel 37 is pivotal to an understanding of the events of, of the time of the end. If, as many modern expositors and writers argue, Ezekiel 37 is applied to the modern revival of the state of Israel, in view of the unbroken chain of events presented in the chapter, logic demands that Ezekiel 38 will take place after Christ has returned and restored Israel, that being, or he being, in the saints, the cause of the peace and safety and the unwalled villages, and in response to an Arab confederacy which almost overruns Israel. And this peace and safety is the impetus which entices Gog to come down. Now even though Ezekiel 39, which this is important to read, look at verses 25 through 26, this is how the peace and safety is described by Yahweh. Verse 25 reads like this, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Now I will bring again the captivity of Jacob, and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel, and will be jealous for my holy name. After that they have borne their shame, and all their trespasses, whereby they have trespassed against me, when they dwelt safely in their land, and none made them afraid. So brethren, this is truly our fork in the road then. It doesn't seem logical that with Christ and the saints there establishing the peace, establishing the security, establishing the safety, the unwalled villages, that there is still the state of trespass occurring. There's still the state of sin occurring. And then on top of that, if Gog, which we'll look at uh, later, does indeed overrun Jerusalem, then how do we square that Israel or Christ and the saints pull back and allow this to happen? That's something that has been a splinter in my mind that uh, has driven me to try to resolve this. Now, even though Ezekiel 39, 25 through 26 demonstrates conclusively that this peace and safety is considered a trespass against Yahweh, in that they secured it in the pride of their own hand, this becomes a fork in the road and the origin of this commonly accepted view or understanding. And that view is this, that an Arab confederacy threatens to overrun and threatens to scatter Israel, never successfully does, I might add, but threatens them so that there is such a loss of confidence that they cry to Yahweh. 
Point two, Christ returns in dramatic appearance to the world with his angels to Jerusalem, and there are variations of this um, understanding, to redeem Israel and to establish the kingdom. And those verses of his second advent directly to Jerusalem, or firstly to Jerusalem, derive from Matthew 24, 30-31, and Matthew 25. Judgment of the saints then follows. The unwalled villages and the peace and safety is established. Gog is enticed down to Zion because of the peace and safety and is opposed and defeated by Christ and the saints on the mountains of Israel in the battle of Armageddon. Gog never enters into the city of Jerusalem, according to this view. But many problems are evident with this phased approach or Arab-Muslim confederacy. First, if you read carefully the prophecies of Psalm 83 and others, the Arabs never succeed in their desire to cut off Israel. Christ, of course, cannot return to Jerusalem first with literal angels because this discounts the entire rainbowed angel multitudinous Christ march and his return to Sinai, up from the south, which we see clearly, and we'll look at these verses closely, Deut- Deuteronomy 33.2, Habakkuk 3, Psalm 68, or just a few of those that clearly say he comes up from the south, from Teman, from Sinai, into the sanctuary, which is Jerusalem. And the judgment of those saints, which must have already taken place in Sinai. Christ, of course, returns as a thief to the world. And not until his glorious, victorious entrance into into Jerusalem is he witness to the world. That's an important point. Gog is responsible for the scattering of Israel. And there are not two scatterings of Israel, just as there are not two great and terrible days of the Lord. There is just one, and this is just one event styled a day. Gog also is responsible for planting his tabernacles of his palace or tents, which is uh, defined as palatial tents or military tents of the chief and his court between the seas, the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean, and also the Dead Sea. So in that, if you triangulate there, he must be planting the chief of his military tents in that vicinity, not on the outskirts, but in the center of that, which is Jerusalem. It is a temporary occupation. The scattered Jews are then regathered as part of the Rainbow Angel March from Egypt, which we'll look closely later, later in the week at Isaiah 19, from Saudi Arabia, from Moab, Jordan, where Isaiah 16 says, Moab be a covert and a refuge, refuge for my outcast in the face of the spoiler. These are none other than Jews that have had to flee from the face of the extortioner or the spoiler, which is the, the Gogian host. And part of that company that is returned and restored to Israel when Christ plants his feet upon the Mount of Olives. Christ and the saints in complete victory now, or in complete victory now, complete the gathering of the whole house of Israel from the land of Assyria, Egypt, and the four winds. Let's look at Zechariah 10, because this is just one of the verses that begs the question, when and where and how is this regathering of Jews taking place? And I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy upon them, and they shall be as though I have not cast them off, for I am the Lord their God, and will hear them. And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their hearts shall rejoice as through wine, yea, excuse me, their children shall see it and be glad, their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. And I will hiss for them and gather them, for I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased." And I will sow them among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall live with their children and turn again. And I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt, and gather them out of Assyria, and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon, and place shall not be found for them. And then also Jeremiah 31, 8 through 9. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coast of the earth. And with them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child and her that travaileth with child together, a great company shall return thither, and they shall come with weeping and with supplications. Will I lead them, and I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel 
and Ephraim is my firstborn. So you see how quickly this view found traction in the brotherhood as a shuffling of events was required to make a present-day interpretation fit the world scene. The motive was pure. Just imagine the emotional exuberance of the events of 1917, of 1948, of 1967, and 1973. And this is the point. This is a true yearning for Yahweh and, his, and Christ's return. So the motive is pure. and We're not attacking any of those types of things. But there's a problem that comes even with this earnest desiring in prophecy, and that is what is styled profiteering from current events. You look at current events, and then you work backwards and say, we must alter this general framework. And it may not be intentionally performed, but certainly we've seen uh, various writers, such as Whitaker, when you look at the uh, Arab-Israeli wars roundabout, come back and change the whole frame of prophecy, even changing the uh, great harlot of Revelation to that of being Israel herself. Now, that is a dramatic distortion and an error, I would submit to you, uh, completely. But when we look, I mean, certainly we could look in 1989 and look at Russia and say, Russia's finished. Soviet Union has collapsed. It's done. This is not going to be the nation or power that's going to rise up. But we have a very different perspective today regarding Russia. She is a behemoth that has risen back and uh, has a role, has a divine role for her to perform. We look at the coming together of Europe, the European Constitution, now as a, was set back a little bit, but just last month was uh, signed a treaty instead of a constitution, and we're waiting for the injection of this Catholic aspect into that to ratify or solidify the coming together of Europe. But in the era of the Cold War, you'd look at how is Europe possibly going to get together? It seems impossible. It's not impossible today. It's before our eyes. So we must be patient and first go to the Word and say, what is dictated for these various players? Who, who are they? And what must they perform according to Yahweh's will? And then wait for that. Gog is going to come down into the land with his confederacy. Israel must be scattered because they must be regathered out of Egypt. And there's ample verses that we have to look at regarding this second exodus. So it begs the question, if they're scattered, therefore what? Who doesn't? If the Arabs in Scripture do not scatter them, then who does it? The desire for Christ's instant appearing burned bright within the brotherhood, but this interpretation was not the original one put forth by our, by our pioneer brethren, and more importantly, the Scriptures themselves. Take a look at this slide. What Dr. Thomas had written was in complete agreement with the conclusions that I had reached. He did not consider the pre-adventual colonization of Palestine by the Jews, which would be the modern governmental Zionistic establishment of Israel, to be in any way the rest restoration spoken of by the prophets. He considered that there would be a desolation of the state of Israel by Gog's host, and this would be in fulfillment of Ezekiel uh, 37 causing Israel to say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. That Messiah and the saints will be involved in causing the bones of the nation of Israel to come together and stand up an exceeding great army. From Bible Student, Volume 9, page 75, and also Herald of the Kingdom and Age to Come, Volume 2, page 195. And a quote from uh, Brother Thomas. There is then a partial and primary rest restoration of Jews before the manifestation, which is to serve as the nucleus or basis of future operations in the restoration of the rest of the tribes after he has appeared in the kingdom. The pre-eventual colonization of Palestine will be on purely political principles, and the Jewish colonists will return in unbelief of the Messiahship of Jesus and of the truth as it is in him. They will emigrate thither as agriculturalists and traders in the hope of ultimately establishing their commonwealth, but more immediately of getting rich in silver and gold by commerce with India and in cattle and goods by their industry at home under the efficient protection of the British power. Alpha Israel, page 441. 
Continuing, there must be a resettlement of the land by the Jews to a limited extent before the Battle of Armageddon. His reasoning was that since Gog is to invade Israel, there must of necessity be an Israel in the land for him to invade. We see how logical that point is. From Eureka, uh, volume 2, page 559, which I'll just read. Thus all the nations of this northern confederacy, or Gog's confederacy, are gathered by Yahweh against Jerusalem after his descent to Sinai and before his entrance into the city, which is Jerusalem. He permits it to be taken and rifled by the spoiler and its inhabitants to be partly expelled and sent into exile, as we read from Zechariah 14.2. Their hope would now seem to be lost and themselves finally cut off from their parts, as it reads in Ezekiel 37.11. They had doubtless thought that the long-expected rest had been established beyond the possibility of disturbance, the peace and safety yet still trespassing against Yahweh, from Ezekiel 39. They were at rest in the middle of the land, but the whole house of Israel was not there, and the nations were yet not acquainted with the omnipotence of the kings of the sun's rising. Again, Eureka, volume 2, page 559. Now, do we have that in Israel today? I mean, again, if you watch uh, various documentaries on the Holocaust and you listen to the testimonials of those that survived it, that horrendous event, and they come back, much of the sentiment is that, how can there be a God of Israel that allows this to happen to us? They came back very embittered. They had, if you remember earlier, there were the Russian pogroms uh, and massacres that drove them out of uh, Russia. So they moved westward into Europe. They became very prosperous in European nations such as Germany, specifically Poland, Czechoslovakia. Some of them moved uh, all the way to uh, America, but most of them did not want to go back to the Middle East or the land of Palestine. Malaria, dry and hot, truly, uh, as the phrase goes, an inhabitants of bats and owls, and they despised the land, as it says in Numbers. So they did not return, even out of persecution. They went westward into Germany. Well, we know what, we know what became of that. We have the British, we have the Balfour Declaration, we have the uh, right of return, the British mandate, but that window of time closed as well. And those that did not return, even though those that opportunity was wide open, stayed in Germany, and we know what happened through World War I and the Holocaust. Now, on the inaugural address, we see here the mood of the nation of Israel expressed by Ben Gurion in 1948. Always we shall demand of the world what is justly ours, but morning and evening, day in and day out, we must remind ourselves that our existence, our freedom, and our future are in our own hands our own exertions, our own capacity, our own will, they are the key. And we contrast that with the words and the spirit in Jeremiah 31.10, He, Yahweh, who scattered Israel, will gather him. So this is, when you look at the mindset of Omert, or the previous rulers of Israel, it is, never again, we will secure our own safety, our military, our means, our economy. You know, truly it is, it is an undying spirit, and we can, uh, we can sympathize with that to a high degree, but it is not a spirit that identifies Messiah, and it is not a spirit that follows Yahweh's commands. Predominantly, there is a nucleus in that nation that is resident there, that is waiting to be cultivated, and I believe truly, brethren, that that is the one-third that will come through the fire, and we'll talk about that more as well. Subsequently, an amended brother, Bernard Burt, did an extended lit literature research for references relating to Ezekiel 37, and he looked at those and related those to Christadelphian literature. He concluded, It appears clear from researches into these published expositions that the view that the return of the Jews to the land, which began with the Zionist movement in 1897, was the fulfillment excuse me, fulfillment of the prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones, that this was the interpretation given to the prophecy by some leading Zionists 
and non-Christadelphian students of the day, and that the Brethren adopted this interpretation and publicized it despite the existence of quite different exposition of the prophecy in the writings of Dr. Thomas. By no stretch of the imagination can the spirit of independence and self-reliance which pervades modern Israel, identified as the trespass while dwelling in peace and safety in Ezekiel 39:26, by no way can that be correctly styled God's spirit as some would maintain. When God imputes his spirit into the nation of Israel, it is never to be withdrawn again, and they subsequently are never to be scattered, oppressed, or persecuted again, and certainly not by Gog. Modern-day expositions fail to explain this critical principle. Ezekiel 39.29 states, Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord. And again, Ezekiel 36.26 and 27 states, and let's just read that, Ezekiel 36.26 and 27 Chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. The point being that when God bestows his spirit into Israel, it is a permanent change. Something that we have yet to see, and most certainly an event, after Christ has defeated Gog and his host in the Battle of Armageddon. Now back to Ezekiel 37. If we look at verse 2, the word dry is defined by Jacinius as meaning, quote, hope has failed or to be disappointed. And if you look at Proverbs 17.22, we read this about a broken spirit. A merry heart doeth good like medicine, but a broken spirit dryeth the bones. Certainly this is not Israel's disposition today. She relies upon the strength of her own hand, the treacherous treaties with her neighbors. Isaiah 30 is an example historically. Um, there have been other examples throughout Scripture of Israel turning to Canaanite neighbors for treaties and to shore up deals and protection outside of Yahweh. And this is what she does today. And we're, frankly, we're seeing that with some of the southern Sunni Arab Persian Gulf state nations. Back-channel discussions between Israel and Saudi Arabia, with Jordan, um, to a lesser degree with Egypt. And we're seeing this polarization according to the two confederacies in the latter days of a Sunni, excuse me, Sunni, Sunni and hot in the Persian Gulf, Sunni uh, and Shiite type of split. Shiite's going to be Persian, which is Iranian, Syrian, which even though there's many Sunnis in Syria, the government is Shiite, uh, Hezbollah. Um, so we see this division line, and certainly Iraq right down the middle of it, Shiite and Sunni split. So Israel today resides in her own ability or her own military to defend herself. She is not of failed hope, disappointed and in despair, as Ezekiel 37.2 requires. Therefore, this state must occur at some point in the future. Now, let's look more closely at this dry bones aspect. In verses 1 through 3, it is more probable and consistent with the sequence of the prophecy that the Gogi invasion will reduce the modern nation of Israel to the dry bones condition depicted here by the prophet Ezekiel. Anticipating the explanation of the vision given in verses 11 through 14, the bones represent disobedient and unrepentant Israel who had chosen death rather than life. In Deuteronomy 30:19, The death of the nation is a reoccurring theme in Scripture and not new as it regards Israel. Jer Jeremiah spoke of Israel as a sheep slain by the Assyrian and Babylonian lions. Quote, Israel is a scattered sheep, the lions have driven him away. First the king of Assyria hath devoured him. And last, this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, hath broken his bones. Deuteronomy 28, 25 through 26 also speaks of Israel in similar terms. 
Quote, the Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thy carcass shall be meat unto all the fowls of the air, unto the beasts of the earth, and no man shall fray or frighten them away. Now this has been the experience of Israel throughout the ages, to be slain, devoured, picked bare by the Assyrian, Babylonian, and Roman, and all the nations which he has been scattered into. However, Ezekiel's vision refers to none of these, but to a destruction of the nation which is still in the future. It is from the dead, hopeless state of Israel, this despair, our bones are dried, our hope is lost, here depicted that the nation is transformed transformed into Messiah's kingdom. Now at the present time, there has been a change in the condition of the Jewish people. Israel is a nation again in the land. But it should be carefully noted that this is not a fulfillment of this vision of revival. For verse 14 in Ezekiel 37 clearly teaches that before God places them in the land, and the word places does not mean simply to cause them to return to the land, as many have already done, but the Hebrew word is nuach, N-U-A-C-H, and it signifies to rest, settle down, and remain. Now this, I would submit, suggests that to place Israel in the land is far more than to regather them as Israel is regathered at this present time. It is more to settle them in the land in fulfillment of the promises. Ezekiel confirms this, for he makes it plain that for Israel to be, quote, placed in the land depends upon them receiving the Spirit. Yahweh says, I will put my Spirit in you, and ye shall live, and I shall place you in your own land, from verse 14. <laughs> Yahweh says clearly that before he places them in their own land, he will put his Spirit in them. Now, modern Israel is this land. But modern Israel certainly does not have this spirit which leads them, as we shall see in Yahweh's statutes. Again from Brother Thomas, the colonization of Judea by Jews under the protection of a Gentile government is neither restitution, restoration, nor regeneration. Nothing short of a national establishment in the land under Messiah and his brethren constitutes either of them in the scriptural sense. Restitution is not simply the return of the race, but the setting up again of institutions that once existed there. Ezekiel's vision of Israel as a valley of dry bones is a vision of things still future. It represents the condition of modern Israel and world Jewry, which will result from the Gogian offensives. It is a picture of Israel at the time depicted by Jeremiah. Alas, for that day is great, so none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. And continuing in Zechariah, speaks of the days saying that Jerusalem shall be taken. The houses rifled and the women ravished. And also in Habakkuk, also writes of the time when Gog will invade them with his troops. And the subsequent desolation is described in the words, The fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. And Joel describes the scattering of Israel by the nations as the parting of my land, and they have cast lots for my people, Tyre, Zidon, and the coast of Palestine, Gaza, from Joel 3, 2 through 4. We also see in Isaiah 19, Israel scattered back into Egypt, and they cry because of their oppressors scattered into Moab, into Jordan, Isaiah 16. This view of Ezekiel 37 is confirmed by noting the words used in verse 9, breathe upon these slain. So Israel has been slain, scattered, devoured, as we see in the historical language that we read earlier. The effect of the Gogan invasion upon modern Israel will be terrible. Our bones are dried, our hope is lost, we are cut off from our parts or clean cut off, as the RB would say. His brother Thomas also quotes, their hope would now seem to be lost and themselves finally cut off from their parts. The hopes of self-preservation, totally destroyed, or self-reliance, or the strength of their own hand, completely humbled, leads them to cry to Yahweh, because they cannot push a button and nuke their neighbors. That has been 
totally eliminated that option. They cannot launch their air force and defeat the invading army. That has been totally destroyed. They cannot gather their tanks together with their troops and their high-tech weaponry and defeat the enemy. That has been eliminated. They have nothing left. They have been humbled. And that is when, at that lowest abased point, they cry to Yahweh. And what happens at that point? The fury will rise in Yahweh's face to come for the salvation and the redemption of his people. And you can see the warrant for that anger coming up in Yahweh's face. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. These are the earthquake judgments. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. In Zechariah 14, 3-4. And I will make her that halted a remnant. Here is that remnant aspect, which we'll look at later. And her that was cast off, a strong nation, and the Lord, Yahweh, shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth, even forever, Micah 4, 7. So Israel's humbled state is foretold by Jesus himself, when having been rejected by Israel, he wept over the city of Jerusalem and said, Ye shall not see me henceforth, so ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, from Matthew 23:29. A reversal of fortune will face the nation of Israel, for they will... For they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Zechariah 12.10 So since the prophet is told that, quote, these bones are the whole house of Israel, that is, Judah and Israel, in verse 11, it would appear that this state of desolation is not confined to the Jews in the land. Gog's invasion of the state of Israel will be accompanied by anti-Semitic, anti-Zionistic activity in the countries of Gog's armies. This also squares with our understanding of the Arab pylon effect when Gog invades, which is styled Edom or the spirit of Edom, which is another talk. Now we'll also answer that question later. You know, what do you do with Obadiah? What do you do with Psalm 83? What do you do with these various Arab contingencies? Well, Arab, it's important to understand, is truly descendants of Ishmael, which is going to be your, uh, you're going to be your southern Arab peoples which we understand through the media today. Are Iranians Arabs? No, they're Persian. Are Iraqis Arabs? No, they're ancient Chaldeans. Are Syrians Arabs? No, they're not. But if you want true Arabs, it's those descendants of Ishmael, and we have to identify those nations and not think uh, like the media wants us to think, Middle East Arabs. It's who are Arabs and who are these other peoples? Because as you see, with Gog's confederacy, there are no Semitic peoples associated with Gog in his confederacy. None. No descendants of Shem are in that confederacy. That's important to note. Since the prophet is told these bones are the whole house of Israel, uh, we already mentioned that, the great question will then be asked, can these bones live? Will the nation of Israel, devastated by the northern invader, which is also styled the latter-day Assyrian, the Gogian host, be able to rise again in the fulfillment of the promises of Yahweh? And this is the question that is answered in verses 4 through 8. So Ezekiel is acting in type and in figure of the Son of Man, is commanded to prophesy over these bones. These torn, these slain, these bones that have been dried, that have been scattered, the hope would seem to be lost. And now the rejuvenation and restitution is about to occur, occur at the hands of Messiah. It should be noted at this point that Ezekiel is presented to us as part of the vision. He is in the valley of the dry bones and he is commanded to prophesy over or upon in the RV. The RV is over. The bones in verse 4. Further, not until he prophesies upon the bones does anything happen to them, since it is Yahweh manifest in David's son who is to save Israel from the Gogian invader and who then proceeds to restore again the kingdom of Israel from Acts 1.11 
it seems reasonable to, to conclude that Ezekiel, the son of man, is, in the vision is representative of the son of man whose word will bring about the restoration of Israel. Perhaps the son of man is a description of Christ and his saints, the multitude, the son of man. As Graham Pierce comments, Ezekiel here is a man of sign, as in so many parts of his book, he represents the saints and their Lord, Milestones 1988. In Revelation 1, it is said that the Son of Man, or of the Son of Man, that, quote, out of his mouth went a sharp sword. In Revelation 19.15, adds that with it he should smite the nations. Isaiah speaks of the Lord Jesus in similar language when he says, quote, he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. From Isaiah 11:4 and 49, verse 2. That which comes out of his mouth is his word, and when he speaks, it is done. His word, like that of his father, is quick, or in the RV, living, and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Messiah, together with his saints, will emerge on the political scene after the Gogian invasion, from Ezekiel 38.20, Zechariah 14, Habakkuk, and Joel 3. He speaks the words or ushers the command, which brings about the over overthrow of Gog's armies and the revival of the nation of Israel. With regard to the latter, it is not simply a call to the Jews in the land who have survived the invasion and the scattering, but a call to the whole house of Israel, in verse 11. So Isaiah speaks of that word which shall go forth over the bones. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Well, we're running out of time, but I want to get through. I want to get through, but it's, it won't happen. Let's get into the noise and shaking, and we'll have to pick this up tomorrow. Here we have a mixture of literal and, and the symbolic. Jesus has all nature under his control, and he will use these powers to judge the nations. In, comb in combination with uh, literal judgments and later Israel themselves as the goodly horse and the battle axe in battle. Habakkuk says of him, this is Christ, he stood and shook the earth, he beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the eternal mountains scattered, and the everlasting hills did bow. His goings were of old, from Habakkuk 3 through 6, I'm sorry, Habakkuk 3 verse 6 from the RV. Ezekiel's description of the downfall of Gog's army is in similar language. There shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. All the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence, and the mountains shall be thrown down. Ezekiel 38:19-20. Thus the noise and the shaking has to do with the overthrow of Gog's armies. Now the resurrection of Israel. It will be after this political upheaval that Israel will be restored as God's nation in the land. This is clearly taught in Ezekiel 39. For after the overthrow of Gog, God says, Now will I bring back again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be zealous for my holy name. Of this time of restoration, God says, I have gathered them unto their own land and have left none of them any more there or among the nations. Thus the national resurrection of Israel spoken of in Ezekiel 37 is not the creation of the state of Israel which we have witnessed, but something more wonderful, the recreation and the regeneration of the nation by Messiah subsequent to the Gogan invasion. And we'll stop there and pick up tomorrow.